0: Well, we're going to talk about marriage for a couple Sundays. Um, I know you've probably heard about the two satellite dishes that got married, and the wedding itself wasn't that great, but the reception? Oh, man. <laughs> it was amazing. I want to say uh, two things come to my mind to say before I even start today, and that is that some of you are not married And that may be because you're widowed, or it may be because you're divorced, or just because you're single and we're never, we're married. And I want to say to you, uh, just because over the next couple weeks here, I'm going to talk about this topic of ideal of marriage. Don't get up and leave, even if you're not married. Listen and learn, and pray for the people who are married, and pray for those who are preparing to get married, or who want to get married, or planning to get married, and so forth. And I especially want to say, I always think of this and feel so, I guess, sensitive towards those of you who have been married and your marriage failed at some point and you are divorced, even if you are remarried. I know often, sometimes these things um, surface again. And I want to just uh, say to you that you hope that you please understand that nothing that I say in these sermons about marriage is meant to condemn anyone Um, in any way, shape, or form. My heart breaks, as, our, as all of ours does, for the pain that you have endured in whatever uh, failure may have happened to a marriage in the past. <clears throat> but at the same time, this is part of the image of God, that we have this union of marriage, and it's a very exciting part of our lives, and we want I want to take three Sundays. In fact, what I'd like to do um, is... Next Sunday, and all these are from a first beginning of the book of Malachi in the Old Testament, some thoughts that were there as Malachi was addressing Israel. Um, next week, I would like to talk about the issue of giving of giving in marriage. The following week, I'd like to talk about the issue of trusting. But today, this issue of choosing. And I want to read the very beginning of the Old Testament book of Malachi. Malachi is the last book in your Old Testament. If you have trouble finding it, or you're not familiar with it, it's right before the Gospel of Matthew. I suppose Malachi was one of the last... uh, He he was one of the the latest of the Old Testament spokesmen, prophets. And... He starts out um, addressing the people of Edom. The Israelites, the, the Israelite nation were between the Dead Sea on their east and the Mediterranean Sea on their west, the long strip of land coming down. And to the east of them, east of the Jordan River, east mostly of the Dead Sea, which today is the country of Jordan, was a group of people called the Edomites. And they, of course, were descendants of Jacob's twin, Esau, very nasty country that they live in. Um, as I said today, it's the country of Jordan, and it's but, but not nasty, I mean it's just barren. It's just rocks and scrubs and the salt, the salt lake, and it's, it's not a, a friendly environment. They lived in the rocks and the crags at times, but it was a place that the Edomite people, the Descendants of Esau had lived for many, many years and had figured out a way to carve out a living there with their families. So when he says Esau here, he's not just talking about the person Esau, the historical father of this people, but these people who continually uh, bickered with the people of Israel and there was warfare at times back and forth. And, and so Esau is more than just one historical figure. Esau is a group of people. And he says this, an oracle, of the word of the, an oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Malachi means my messenger. I have loved you, says the Lord. And you ask, but you ask, How have you loved us? Well, Here's the answer. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? The Lord says, Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, Edom again is the people of Esau. Edom may say, Though we have been crushed, we will rebuild these ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says, They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. Uh, that phrase, especially the sentence, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated, of course, as I'm sure you're aware, has been a hotbed of discussion for many, many years. And a lot of debate has gone back and forth between the Calvinists and the Arminians and other, other folks who are trying to get an angle on why God would love somebody and hate somebody else. And what kind of God is this anyway that would boldly, blatantly say, I love you, but I hate you, when he tells us to love everyone. And he says in the New Testament that he loves all men and wants all to come to repentance. So what, where, where, where is this thing going? Um, I, wanna, I will come back to that issue a little later. But let me go back and just sort of highlight this scripture. and and put it in our language and, and the logical flow of it. First of all, the Lord said to the Israelite people, I love you. I do now love you. I have loved you. So this is why I spring into marriage from this passage, because marriage is a statement of love. It is a lifestyle of love. It is a commitment of love. And so this is the Lord saying, as we know from other places, I choose you in the sense that you are my first love. You are my special companion. Over and over, God calls Israel his bride. And he refers to himself as his, her husband and so forth. And so, he, he's simply affirming this relationship. But right away, Malachi pictures the Israelite people in their pride, in their wounds, whatever, um, being a bit skeptical about this. And they say, oh yeah, how? In other words, right. Um, we'd sure like to see. It's easy for you to say you love us. Is there any proof of the fact that you love us? And God's answer is, there sure is. And this is the crux of the God's proof. This choosing of Israel. Israel. For whatever reason, it says God spoke to Abraham. None of us were there. None of us can explain or understand why God spoke to Abraham that day in the wilderness when he said, Abraham, Abraham, follow me and I'll take you to a land that you don't know and I'll make of you a great family and I'll give to you a land and you will become the father of many nations and the stars won't even be as many as your descendants. And all this stuff, God says, I chose you. Which means, by implication, I did not choose anybody else. You want to know how how I can prove that I love you? I am choosing you. I have chosen you. And that fact is evident by the fact that I didn't choose someone else. So you can take the very fact that I chose you as a statement that is a carte blanche statement. I love you. That is why I have chosen you. And the proof that I have chosen you is that I didn't, I didn't choose someone else. And then he talks about the fact that Esau or Edom may kind of uh, sass back about the fact that they were not the chosen ones. And God says, look, I, I turned their habitation into um, a, a place that's difficult to live in. In other words, I didn't do them the same kind of favors that I did you. Now, if you've traveled to Israel, you may wonder <laughs> if it's that much better on the west side of the Jordan River than on the east side. But that's, that's a whole different story. Uh, even if the Edomite people would try to force their way into my inner circle, into my graces, into my choice, even if they tried that, I will shove them away. Even harder, because nobody will dictate to me who I choose, and I have chosen Israel. And if the Edomite people cannot uh, cannot deal with that, if they're jealous and they try to force their love upon me or force me to love them, I my my, my answer of no will just get harsher and harsher, because I have made my choice. And the choice of loving and connecting with Israel necessarily is a choice to have a line drawn between Israel and all these other nations and all these other countries. And so the Lord says, look, even if they try to seduce me into loving them or to force me or to intimidate me, I will still reject that as a claim because I choose who I choose. So think about this in terms of marriage and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of exciting even though it seems difficult in a way for these Edomite people and, and, and I'm going to come back to that because there's more to say there about that. But this is the bottom line as I see it and especially connecting it with marriage to this statement that Malachi opens his book with. The Lord says here, my proof of choosing you is my refusal to choose someone else and my rejection of every advance of anybody who might want me to choose them. That is the proof. You say, how have you loved us? And I'm explaining to you that I love you proven through the fact that no one else has your role and no one else has my affection. As you do. So let me tie this into marriage. The sacred and solemn vow of marriage, I think, carries a lot of weight for a number of reasons. One of it, one of it uh, uh, I'm sorry for the misspelling here, one of it is a, because it is a statement of choice. Not only is it a statement of choice, but this is a powerful part of it. It is a public statement of choice. And that little word and that image and that, you know, we had a, we had a wedding here yesterday. Uh, Bryce Makowski and Dara Murray were married. And it was, a, it was just a great moment for all of their family and all their friends to hear them say, oh yes, Reverend, I do. Oh yes, I will. That magic moment when the, when, the, when the love of the heart becomes a public statement. You know, I was thinking about this. When God created the world, He made a very public statement or a stirring or an outcry. The Lord didn't do it quietly. He spoke into the cosmic microphone and His word went out. And He said, let there be light. Let there be dry land up here. Let plants appear on the land. Let us make man in our image." And, he, and, and for whoever and wherever they were, God spoke out the desires of what he wanted to do, what he wanted to accomplish, what he was looking. And I thought to myself once, what if it didn't work? I mean, God would maybe be a little embarrassed if he said, let there be light, and nothing happened. And please don't think that I'm blasphemous for thinking these thoughts. I just... I just realize that when a person is married they come and they say publicly this is who I love this is what I want this is what I intend to make happen what if it doesn't work they're laying it all on the line they're putting everything that they have out there and they're not holding anything back this is a lot like marriage when we come and say um, oh yes I do and and On the opposite side of the coin, this is quite unlike cohabitation where no no one in the public has any idea the best idea they can get from whatever's going on is that this is a definite maybe. But nobody knows exactly what is in their heart because in no public way have they ever stated or told or explained or expressed what that choice of their heart is. So... This part of it is, is important, and we tend to think, I, I, I think uh, often that, we tend to think that the, the emotion is the important part, that love is when somehow our heart swells up to where it feels like bursting. And I want to remind you over and over as the, that the Bible makes it pretty clear that while love may be filled with emotion, that's not exactly what love is. Love is a choice. And so this, this thought of marriage as choosing is really the heart and soul of marriage, past, present, and future. Um, I mentioned this yesterday. If you were here at, uh, at that wedding, you may remember me saying this, but uh, there is never a time in the history of civilization in any culture or any century, when people have not gotten married, um, the, 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 you know, the social historians will say, well, the origins of marriage are in our prehistory, and I'm simply saying that's a way of saying nobody ever remembers a time when men and women didn't stand up and make a public commitment and follow with a life that they have that they have chosen to live together. It is a choice. So... Briefly, as I know my time's going to go, I want to mention three aspects of that choice. And the first one is this, and probably this is most perhaps important of all. When you, choose, when you marry, when you enter into marriage, when you make marriage work, when you make marriage happy, when you make marriage fulfilling, here's the reason why. You choose a person, not a performance. Performances vary. Performances come and go. We all have good days and bad days. We all have days where we're just humming along like a finely tuned machine and we all have days where we sputter. (laughs) We, We don't know whether we're even going to be able to stay on the road. That's okay. Because the choice of marriage is not a choice of a certain performance. It is a choice of a person. And it hopes for a good performance and it's happy and blessed when there's a good performance. But it realizes that it is not always going to be so and it is, it is absolutely okay with that reality because the choice is the person. Uh, let me just start by reminding us of this. A verse of scripture that makes it very clear that this is the kind of love God has for us. This... This beloved passage in Romans 5 says God commended or reached out or extended his love toward us while we were still sinners. Now I ask you what our performance might have been while we were still sinners. And of course we are all sinners still to the end of our days. But you know what he's talking about. He's saying before we were forgiven of those sins by Christ. And in the days prior to living, prior to being forgiven by Christ or understanding the love of of God in Christ, uh, some of us in our performance, as far as God was concerned, would be absolute failures. So God did not come to us because he was impressed with us. He didn't come to us because um, he couldn't resist us. Because our performance was so amazing. Many of us were kind of quite wretched in our performance. Nevertheless, God chose us and extended his love toward us while our performance was abysmal. This is the example that he gives, and this is my point, that it proves that he's not after or worried about or, or making the decision or the choice based on the performance. This also is very carefully spoken in the vows of the wedding. You know, probably the most familiar part of the wedding vows, the thing that, we, that has the ring to it that, that we, we think of often is for better or for worse, or for rich or for poor, uh, or sick, in sickness and in health. You know, all of these different, you could stack up a whole list of these. Until death do us part. So, death is the removal of the person. Death has nothing to do with the performance. Death is the removal of the person. So you're saying, until this person is here no more, I make this choice. It's not on whether this person is on an even keel, whether this person is able to compensate me financially for all my trouble, whether this person is sane or insane, that's not what it's saying. It says, until this person is no more. And so, this is, I'm simply saying, this is the considered and carefully expressed idea of the wedding vows themselves. Whatever version you make, it don't have to be those words. That's not the point. The point is that you're making a promise. And that promise is focused on the person. And this, of course, is really the the ongoing work of a marriage is to get past the performance, to ignore the performance, to overlook or to forgive or to somehow do an in run around the performance so that you can stay with the person, so that you can keep connecting with the person, so that you can love and hang on to and, and relate to and, and serve that person. You know, I think back in my relationship with Cindy in our day, early days when we were dating, um, I don't remember exactly what brought this conversation up, but she made my heart stop because at this point I was interested in her. And she just stopped my heart, made my heart stop cold because she told me that uh, in the prayers of her life and the ambitions of her life, there were two things that she had asked God for and prayed about that he, she asked him never to, I uh, guess, burden her life with or bring into her life. One was she did not want to marry a preacher. <laughs> you laugh. You chuckle, but I wasn't chuckling in that moment. One was that she never wanted to live in Pennsylvania. And, of course, at that time, I didn't know where we would live, but I thought that that may be a good possibility because the portion of the United Brethren Church that I knew I was heading into was the pencil called the Pennsylvania Conference and most of our churches were here. And and so this was a serious moment for me because I knew where my life was headed. God called me a long time ago and I knew what was ahead for me. And now she says, well this is what I have I have asked God not to burden me with. I don't and and so of course to make a long story short God did a work in her heart. And she was able to look past my performance to a person that she wanted to love, that person that, she, that she, she, in other words, she wanted the person more than she didn't want the performance. And she was able to move past that, thank the Lord, and has put up with me for a long time. And not just way back then, but many, many days since that time when my performance might have disappointed her or might have made her angry. She looks, she's never left me. She's never walked out. She's never said, well, this isn't what I signed up for. Because she didn't sign up for any particular uh, path. She signed up for a person. She chose. And that's what marriage is. Marriage is that sort of a choice. And whether, as I said, I'm running on smoothly on all cylinders or whether I'm still sputtering, she has not been deterred by the performance. And this is... What we choose when we choose marriage, we choose a person. We choose not a performance. Here's a second part that I want to mention. And this is a heavy one because so many marriages fall apart because of competition. And so I want to just remind us that these Edomites were competition for Israel. And God has to speak to them and draw a line and smack them back away and say, get away, get away. Because because they were trying to interfere. And so the choice is in marriage that you're saying, I choose you over anything that might compete for my affection. I choose you over any competition, whatever shape or size or look, or style it may have. If it is competing. Or wants to compete with my heart. And my affection. And my commitment. And my, in your priority. It will lose. That's what I choose. That's marriage. <clears throat> um, I put some things. I listed some things in your sermon notes. I could fill the whole page. You could write a page of the kind of things that can become competition to marriage. And as I said, there have been countless marriages. I have sat with countless couples and heard stories of competition. And you may be thinking, oh, there's another woman that he's chasing or whatever. Sometimes, but it's not always that at all. Many times, it's not simply another person. It can be a host of things that become interferers between you and your partner. And this is the point that God is making. This is the point that I want to stop and make. And that is that when your partner might say to you, I can't handle this, it's interfering. With our relationship. I don't care what you think. It doesn't matter whether you agree or not. In that moment. You need to acknowledge. This competition. And in that moment. You need to say. If you want to have your marriage work. And you want to have your marriage flourish. In that moment is when you need to say. Then I can't handle. You're not being able to handle it. So therefore, it will cease to be competition any longer. In other words, you are more important to me than anything that that you believe is interfering. And so, whether I agree or not, or whether I whether I may think it's silly, but if it is in your mind competing with our affection or our intimacy or our under, our relationship, then I will I will see that it ceases to exist or to I will repudiate it as competition. Now, I want to just take a moment and go on a side trip just for a minute. Because among the many good things that can be competition for a married relationship is children. And I've sat with so many circumstances where the children were interfering between the couple. And you think, how could this be? Because children are the greatest blessing of all and children are the product of the marriage. And children, yes, 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 yes. At the same time, there's a whole lot of reasons that children sometimes become competition between the husband and the wife. And they interfere. First of all, when they're small, you all know, we all know about how they, have comp- how they want our affection. And they will compete against anything or anyone for our affection. And at times they, you know, will come and ask Daddy, and if Daddy says no, they'll run and ask Mommy, and if Mommy says yes, boy, suddenly Mommy's got their happiness. You know, they're happy with... It's usually the other way around, probably. But um, anyway, um, children who need the marriage and value the marriage don't have enough smarts to realize that they can actually interfere with the marriage. And so if they can somehow or other divide parents from each other or um, somehow cause division. A lot of times, they, it's, it's kind of great entertainment for them. But it's not good for the relationship and they need to be made to understand that they will not succeed in their attempts or even in, their, in, in, those, in that kind of situation. I have seen also many times where children who are no longer at home even, but who are now adults, interfere because in the different squabbles in the different circumstances of life sometimes a, a child becomes an ally against the mate and so this this relationship between a man and a woman becomes a triangular thing where me and the kid feel one way and the mate feels the other way and so now suddenly uh, the, the need to have somebody back me up in this fight against my, my husband or my wife becomes more important than the relationship with my husband or my wife. And, and, and so the children become um, at times uh, like a tool that we can swing at each other in our, like a sword that we can use in our, in our fight against each other. And, and sadly, tragically, this is another thing I want to mention. And I know some of you have gone through this. Some of you have gone through this horrible, tragic thing, uh, thing of losing a child. And I have seen, way more often than I think would, I would have ever seen, I have seen the loss of a child slowly erode and become a significant contributing factor to divorce. I've seen it over and over. And I can't explain it except I have theories about why it happens and I think personally that often it is in the different style of grieving that happens and the, um, the insecurity of the husband or the wife and somehow or other feels that the other one isn't grieving with, a, um, with enough sincerity or whatever it is. And their paths begin to split, take some different directions. And the split occurs over how to process the death of a beloved child. It is tragic beyond words. I, 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 would, I would venture to say maybe one out of five of chill, couples who lose a child end up divorced. And often it is the loss of the child that first really significantly began to spring them apart in different directions. You would never think that it could be so. You would think that it would only bring them together, but it does not always. And so um, this... I'm simply saying, when these things begin to compete, here's what we have to say as a husband and a wife. We have to communicate this to the children, that if you seek to compete with us, with what we have, you will lose. This is actually the meaning of what God's saying in Malachi. This exactly, you know, theologians have argued over this and, and stumped this around, jumped around this stump for, for centuries. But I'm saying to you, This is the simplest, simple message that the Lord is saying. He didn't despise the Edomite people at all. He helped the Edomite people. There are numerous places in the Old Testament. But the Edomite people attacked the Israelites on several different occasions. And God rejected their, God rejected them and punished them for that. Because they were trying to interfere with the love that he had, with this first love relationship that he had. And so, if I could say it like this, God's hatred of them was his objection to their rejection of his wife or of his first love. In other words, if somebody came to me and said, um, "You know, you're okay, but I despise your wife, or i will I'm going to attack your wife uh, very quickly, they would probably find out that maybe I'm not so fine as they think, because I would turn against them and say, "You will do no such thing because her and I are one, so if you attack her, you're attacking me, and, and so forth. You, we, you, you know, we, we use the phrase, you get your hackles up. And this is what the Lord is saying to them. And it was no different for the Edomites than it was for anyone else. If you reject or you attack this one that I love, then the line that I draw is so clear that if you want to use the term hate, that's fine. I love them and I hate you. In other words, I cannot allow myself... To love you in the same way. And the more you try to somehow switch this around, the more you will understand this. Number three. I'm going to go over a tad. I choose submission over self-gratification. When we get married, when you, if you're not married, someday you have that wonderful privilege. I hope you can keep this in mind that the image that we often have culturally of marriage almost as if somehow we're taking on to ourselves a cook or a chef or a maid or a mechanic or whatever it is and 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 we're just you know we're we're increasing our kingdom by getting married is not is not the the picture of marriage that the Bible gives. The Bible, uh, put in, in a passage specifically about marriage in Ephesians 5, says, look, we need to submit to one another. And so, if I could, if I could mention these two items. Um, the, the first is that we need to realize that it's surrendering our desires to the needs of that other person and seeking to serve them rather than to subdue them. The goal of a marriage is not to have a wife, but to be a husband, or vice versa. Let me say it again. The goal of a marriage is not to have a wife, if you're a man, but to be a husband. Your goal is not to have a maid or a mechanic at your beck and call, but to support and serve this friend, This partner through the thick and thin of your ventures together. You know, Jesus said it like this. I didn't come to be served. Now, you know, of course, Jesus was served. Many people assisted Jesus in His earthly mission. He was served. But He said, that's not why I'm here. I didn't come for that. It's not my goal. I didn't come here to see who could help take care of me. And that same thing is true of marriage. 1 Peter chapter 5, speaking of a pastor and a flock, Peter says he ties together these two things. In the same breath, in the same line, he says, eager to serve and not lording it over them. That's a great combination. Eager to serve and not lording it over the other partner. And it's no different for marriage, for the partner that God has entrusted to you, In choosing to be married, we are choosing the submission of our will for the good of the unity or for the purpose of unity. And to surrender my desires and to serve your needs. And I'm sorry when that's not easy. How a wonderful life would be if our partners were always so wonderful that they made it easy to submit to them. When you read 1 Peter chapter 3, it talks about how the holy women of old used to submit to their husbands. You know what it says? It not only says they submitted to their husbands, but in verse 5 it says they found their hope in God. What that says to me is when it's not easy to submit to your husband or your wife. Maybe you're focusing on the wrong place. They found their hope in God. This is how holy women of old who found their hope in God. Submitted to their husbands. This is in first Peter three. So what that what that says is, and, and, and you know, that. It says in Ephesians 5 that we submit to one another out of our reverence for Christ. So it's not just that the other person is worthy in the moment. They may be horribly out of line. They may be unworthy. And I'm not talking about abuse. I'm not, I'm not advocating that we have to just stand up and be slaughtered. It's not my point. But to, to realize that it is through trusting the leadership of God... For this person whom I am submitting to, that I am able to see that happen or enable that to happen. When it does work, or when both people want to have that kind of relationship so that we're both seeking to serve each other, it's a foretaste of heaven. The wonder and the joy of it all. So, let me close by simply saying this. I have no way of knowing at all whether you married the right person whether you married the wrong person. But I do know this, that if you treat the wrong person as if they were the right person, you may well have ended up winding up having married the right person after all. Because the most thing, important thing by far isn't... The most important thing is who you choose to be, not who you marry. In other words, whether not whether you... Chose the right person, or married the right person. But what kind of person? Let me say, try to say it like this: In choosing, in marriage, the most important choosing you do is is not who, but who you choose to be. That's the choice that matters most of all. O oh, Father in heaven. We thank you for just a reminder today of this uh, high calling, of this explosive yet beautiful nature of this relationship that we that we can have with one another, and uh, we we just want to ask that your power would help us, your your strength and your wisdom and your patience would be given to us today. As we as we leave this service, as we go from this place, we we just want to acknowledge that you have loved us and you have drawn a very strong line of protection around us. And anything that will compete against that doesn't stand a chance. Let us somehow be able to, to just put that same kind of priority into our relationship and our commitments with those that we love and especially that one that is our partner.